Well, about five years ago, some of you may remember, I told you the story of our friends Ron and Loreen. Ron and Loreen, uh, when their kids were small, they had a dog, and the dog was a problem. The dog would jump the fence every evening and would just wreak havoc on the neighborhood. The dog would go into other people's yards and chew things up. The dog would go find toys that children from other families had left outside and the dog would bring them home. And uh, the neighbors were complaining and the uh, animal control had been called and the problem was even though this dog was a problem, Ron and Lorene's kids loved this dog. But Ron decided something had to be done about it. And so one night after the kids went to bed, Ron put the dog in the car and he drove the dog about 30 or 40 miles away from their house into some farmland and he just released the dog. He thought there's plenty of room for him to run, somebody will adopt him, he needs to be out here uh, with more space than what our backyard has. And then Ron, when he was telling me about it, he said, Steve, the next morning I lied to my kids. I sat my kids down and I told them, you know, it's really sad, but the dog was hit by a car last night and died. That's what he told his kids. He didn't want them putting up posters all around the neighborhood thinking that the dog was going to come back. So he told them the dog died and it was sad and uh, so forth. He said about four days later, he got a call at work from one of his kids and she was crying and she said, Daddy, it's a miracle. He's alive. (laughs) When the kids came home from school, the dog was sitting on their porch, very much alive, um, having cheated death and um, resurrected. Um, Anyway. We started this series last weekend called Cheating Death, and we're not talking about dogs that come back from the grave, nor are we talking about some of those movies or television shows that you've watched where someone supposedly died and then comes back from the dead. We are talking about real people, real human beings who had died and then they were brought back to life through the power of Jesus. We're talking about the resurrections before Jesus' resurrection. We're talking about Jesus showing his power. We're talking about him showing his equality with God by doing something so incredible, people had to sit up and take notice. And as we will see, usually the people who experience this who experienced these miracles were absolutely despondent. They had lost hope. They had given up. And maybe that's you today. I mean, you're here because you've lost hope in one or more areas of your life. You really don't think that there's anything that can be done to change the situation because it's hopeless. You don't really think that anyone really cares about your situation or about you. And if you feel that way, I'm really glad that you are here today. I believe Jesus is going to speak some hope into your life this morning. 
We're going to look at an event from the life of Jesus. It's recorded in Mark chapter 5. If you want to open there in your Bible or on your device or the scripture will be on the screen behind me, you can take some notes using our note card that's in the back of the chair in front of you. But uh, this event is recorded uh, in Mark chapter 5, but it's also recorded in Luke chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 9. We're not going to look at those as our primary texts, but what that tells us is that this event made a real impression on the historians of Jesus' life because it's recorded three times by three different historians. And this event will give us some understanding of some truths that we should cling to when it just seems hopeless. Now, because of time, let's jump right in. When it seems hopeless, first of all, realize desperation can drive us to Jesus. Desperation can drive us to Jesus. Start reading in Mark chapter 5, verse 22. A leader of the synagogue named Jairus came there, saw Jesus, and fell at his feet. He begged Jesus, saying again and again, My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, Jesus has been across on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he has cast out some demons there. He's calmed the storm on the sea. He's done some other things since uh, last week's message, but he comes back to the, the other side of the sea, and when he gets there, there's this crowd of people waiting for him. They know that he's coming, and they're waiting for him. And in that crowd is this man named Jairus, And the passage begins by telling us that this man was a leader in the local synagogue. That meant he was a man of position. He was a person of prestige and power. He was kind of the pastor of the area. He had worked hard. He had achieved a prominent place in society. He was regarded as a person of influence and importance. But you also need to remember that Jesus wasn't popular with the Jewish religious leaders. And Jairus was a part of those traditional Jewish religious leaders who generally opposed Jesus. These were the same leaders that had criticized Jesus for uh, forgiving the uh, paralyzed man. He is, these are the same leaders that had criticized Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. These are the same leaders who would say that the power of Jesus to heal came directly from Satan. But Jairus is one of those leaders, but he's been sitting at home and he has been watching his only daughter become sicker and weaker. Moment by moment, he sees her strength fading away and she's becoming sicker and he's worried about her. The doctors have been there. They've tried to help, but she just keeps getting weaker and sicker. And as Jairus sat there next to her bed, he keeps thinking about this man named Jesus who Jairus had heard could heal people of diseases and disabilities with just a touch. And he knew that the other religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus He knew that. 
He knew that uh, if he went to Jesus, the other religious leaders would look down on him and maybe shun him, and he might even lose his position in the synagogue and all that he had worked to achieve. But he was desperate to help his daughter. And something inside of him made him believe that Jesus could heal her. So finally, he became so desperate, he ran and he knelt before Jesus and he begged him to help. Now, religious leaders, leaders of the synagogue, don't kneel and they don't beg. So for Jairus to run and fall at the feet of Jesus, that was something that people would have noticed because in that moment, Jairus wasn't the leader of the synagogue. He was a scared and desperate father. And he would risk his position. He would risk the respect of the other leaders and the people. He would respect, or he would risk his dignity because he wanted to see his daughter get well. And in that moment, when he ran and fell at Jesus' feet, in that moment, Jairus proved something that was true then and is still true today. I've seen it happen many times in my 40 years of ministry. Desperation makes us do things that we would never do. People who have a desperate need, often it, that causes them to turn to Jesus. I have seen people who have sneered at faith turn to Jesus when their marriage falls apart or when their health fails or when tragedy strikes. Desperation drives people to Jesus. And notice, Jesus is willing to hear and to help desperate people. Jairus says, Jesus, she's dying. I need you to come touch her. I need you to come heal her. She's dying. He says it over and over and over again. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, wait, wait, wait. Aren't you one of those leaders that's been criticizing me? Aren't you one of those guys that's been talking trash about me? He doesn't do that at all. The passage just says, Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. But if you read further, you're going to find that Jairus wasn't the only desperate person in the crowd that day. Look at what it says next. A large crowd followed Jesus and pushed very close around him. And among them was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered very much from many doctors and had spent all the money she had. But instead of improving, she was getting worse. When the woman heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his coat. She thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Also in the crowd that day, there was this woman. And she'd been sick for 12 years. The passage in Mark says that she had suffered a lot at the hands of many doctors and she had spent all she has. Now, it's interesting. When Luke is writing about this event, Luke being a physician, 
he doesn't mention that she had suffered for a long time at the hands of many doctors. Luke doesn't say that, but Mark does. Mark says that she has suffered a lot at the hands of many doctors, and she spent all her money, and instead of getting better, she has become worse. And her medical problem has also created a social problem for her. It seems that her bleeding was menstrual bleeding, and by Jewish law, that meant that she was ceremonially unclean. That would mean for 12 years she has been considered unclean. For 12 years, she was not allowed to go to the synagogue or to the temple to worship. For 12 years, anyone who touched her would be considered unclean, so they probably didn't. For 12 years, when she went into an area where other people were, she was supposed to announce that she was unclean so that people could avoid touching her or anything that she had touched. Think of it. For 12 years, she had not received a kiss or a hug from any of her family. For 12 years, she had been an outcast from worship and from society. But on this day, she heard Jesus was coming to town and she knew she had to do something. She came believing that Jesus could heal her. She had this tremendous faith. She had this faith. She thought, if I can just touch the edge of his garment, I'll be healed. That's incredible faith. That she wasn't supposed to be in the crowd at least not without announcing herself. She could be punished for being there and not announcing her uncleanness, but touching Jesus could even make Jesus unclean. But she was desperate. And desperation can drive us to Jesus. And she had been disappointed so many times she had to try. She was afraid she was afraid to touch him and more afraid not to. More afraid not to. And so as the crowd pressed around Jesus, she pressed in too and she reached through the crowd and she managed to touch Jesus' robe. So at least two desperate people were in the crowd that day and their desperation had just driven them to Jesus. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that maybe there's some desperate people here today. I mean, your financial situation is desperate. Or your marriage situation is desperate. Or you're desperately worried about one of your children who's making really unwise choices. Or someone you love is in a desperate health situation, whatever it is that makes you feel desperate, please know that turning to Jesus in your desperation is a great thing to do. And we are so glad that you are here. And like Jesus, we want to help you if we can. We want to help you in whatever's going on. Every week we have someone in our next steps uh, canopy after the service who will pray with you, who will talk with you, who will encourage you and help you. Or you can come find me. I'll be out on the turf field after the service and I'll do my best to help you. But the first thing that the story reminds us of is this desperation can drive us to Jesus. Secondly, 
when it seems hopeless, realize Jesus notices you and he cares about you. He notices you and he cares about you. The woman thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And she reaches through the crowd and she touches his clothes. Look at what happens next. Start with verse 29. Instantly, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. At once, Jesus felt power go out from him. So he turned around, uh, he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? His followers said, look at how many people are pushing against you. And you ask who touched me? But Jesus continued looking around to see who had touched him. Now, she touches him, and she's immediately healed, and her plan was just kind of to fade back into the crowd, to just stay unnoticed, to go home, and to enjoy the fact that she was finally healed. But Jesus wouldn't allow that. He felt power go out of him, and he stopped, and he looked around, and he said, who touched me? And no one admitted to touching him, so he kept looking around. And it's interesting to me, Jesus is looking around saying, who touched me? And his followers' response is, who cares? Jesus says, who touched me? They said, who cares? The disciples say, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Look at this crowd, everyone touched you. They all did, they're all pressing around you. Who cares if someone touched you? Who cares if power went out of you? Now, here's the deal. We think Jesus is like his followers sometimes. I mean, we think we need a touch from him. We need help from him. And we think he is thinking, who cares? Who cares? We think that he's the one too busy, that he's the one too busy to notice, but Jesus notices you. He notices you. In fact, he notices you even when you don't want him to notice you. That's what this story tells us. This woman didn't want him to notice her at all, but he did. He kept looking around to see who it was that had touched him. In fact, when you read the same events in Luke chapter 8, it says something very interesting there. Let me give you just one verse. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. It was only when she realized that Jesus wasn't going to let her be unnoticed that she came to Jesus. Continue reading the story in Mark chapter 5. The woman, knowing that she was healed, came and fell at Jesus' feet, shaking with fear. She told him the whole truth. Jesus said to her, Dear woman, you are made well because you believed. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Now, both Luke and Mark mention that she's trembling in fear. Why was she afraid? Well, she was worried that she would be punished by Jesus because she touched him. She was worried that she would be punished by others in the crowd because uh, she had touched him and not uh, announced that she was unclean. She was fearful that she would be embarrassed again. She was afraid that she would be humiliated again. 
She was afraid that she would be rejected again. But Jesus notices her and he cares about her. He wants her to not be unnoticed. He wants others to notice her also. He does all of that because he cares. And when you're hurting or desperate or depressed or lonely or when you're feeling rejected or cast aside or hopeless, I want you to know Jesus notices you and he cares about you. He promises to be with you, to give you strength if you'll just trust in him, if you'll just turn to him. But now don't forget, while all of this is going on, Jairus is there. While Jesus is noticing and caring for this woman, Jairus is there and he's panicking because his daughter is close to death. He believes that Jesus touching her is the only hope that she has. And Jesus is stopping. He's stopping and noticing a woman that doesn't want to be noticed. He's being slowed down by a crowd of people who are pressing around him. And Jairus must have been overwhelmed with anxiety. He must have been impatient. If it was me, I probably would have been yelling, get out of the way, clear the road, we got to hurry, let's go. If you can imagine rushing somebody you love to the hospital with a critical need and suddenly you're stuck in a traffic jam. That's what Jairus was feeling right then. And then his situation got worse. In fact, it became hopeless. And through his situation, we learn that when it seems hopeless, fear may be the enemy of belief. Fear may be the enemy of belief. Let's read on, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of the synagogue leader. They said, your daughter is dead. There is no need to bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus paid no attention to what they said. He told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, just believe. I picture Jairus being impatient and panicked and Jesus is still talking to this lady and then Jairus looks up and he sees people from his house approaching him. Maybe with tears in their eyes. Maybe with concern on their face and he knows immediately why they're there. His little girl has died. It's too late. And they confirm his worst fears. She's gone, they say. (laughs) You don't need to bother Jesus anymore. You don't need to bother Jesus anymore. You know, that attitude mirrors our attitude. I mean, sometimes we think we're going to bother Jesus. We think we're just going to bother him. I mean, I think... Sometimes we think, you know, I shouldn't pray about that. I don't want to bother Jesus with that because after all, I caused that with my sin. So I shouldn't bother Jesus with that. Or it's just a hopeless situation, so I shouldn't bother Jesus with that. Or it's just a little thing. It's really too small of an issue to bother Jesus with. And we don't want to trouble Jesus. We don't want to bother him. 
But please notice the whole context of these two events from the life of Jesus. Jesus wants to be bothered when we think the situation's hopeless. He wants to be bothered. We are not an inconvenience to Jesus. You're not inconveniencing him when you pray. Jesus overhears what these people say to Jairus, and he hears that the daughter has died. He hears them urge him not to bother Jesus, and Jesus didn't pay attention to what they said. I think Jesus probably took Jairus by the arms, and he looked deep in his eyes, and he communicated, you are not bothering me. I care about you. And then he said to him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. What in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? I'm not sure even Jairus knew exactly what he meant, but he had to know something. I think Jairus had to know in that moment with Jesus looking to his, in his eyes and saying, don't be afraid, just believe. I think he had to know the story isn't over yet. The story isn't over yet. You see, sometimes we uh, let our fear make us believe that the story's over. It's our fear that makes us believe that the story's over. Sometimes our fear makes us give up, and often our fear causes us just to stop believing. Our fear uh, may very often be the enemy of our believing. When I get fearful, I stop seeing that God can work in the situation. When I get fearful, I stop believing the best about other people. When I am afraid, I stop believing that I can live for Jesus. I stop believing that I can keep my commitments to him. I stop believing that I can serve him well. How many times has fear uh, caused you to stop believing that God could and would step in and make your situation better than it is? That has happened to me too many times to count. So Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus feared that Jesus being delayed might have caused him to miss out on a miracle. In truth, he was about to find out that it had opened the door for Jesus to do an even bigger miracle. Jesus has another lesson for Jairus and for us. When it seems hopeless, don't miss the miracles. Don't miss the miracles. Look back at Mark chapter 5. Jesus let only Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, go with him. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus found many people there making lots of noise and crying loudly. Jesus entered the house and said to them, why are you crying and making so much noise? The child is not dead, only asleep. But they laughed at him. So after throwing them out of the house, Jesus took the child's father and mother and his three followers into the room where the child was. Taking hold of the girl's hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. This means, young girl, I tell you to stand up. At once the girl stood right up and began walking. She was 12 years old. Everyone was completely amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell people about this. Then he told them to give the girl something to eat. There is so much here in this passage. Let me sum it up for you by pointing out several truths 
about miracles. If you want to take down some notes, these would be good ones to take down. Here's some truths about miracles. First, notice you will miss them if you mock them. When it comes to miracles, you will miss them if you mock them. Did you catch it? They laughed at Jesus. You think, well, wait a minute. They're there for a funeral of a child and they're laughing at Jesus? Yes, they're laughing at him. You wonder how that could happen. Well, it seems in their day there were professional mourners, people that you could, come, that you could pay to come to your house or to somebody else's house and cry and wail and mourn. And this was an important family in town. So they may have had many people from the village who were there paying their respects by crying and wailing. And Jesus says, what are you doing? She's just asleep. And they laugh at him because they knew a dead body when they saw it. They knew she was dead. So Jesus throws them out before he does the miracle. He throws them out before he does the miracle. They missed the miracle because they were mocking him. You say, but won't they know it's a miracle later when they see the little girl walking around? Probably not. People who mock miracles never do. I mean, they mocked it. They don't think a miracle is possible. Jesus said she was asleep and they laughed. But later when they see the young girl walking around, what do you think they thought? They thought, oh, Jesus must have been right. She was just unconscious. She was just asleep. He must have been right. We were wrong. We thought she was dead. And they totally missed the miracle. And still today... If you have to look at a logical explanation for everything God does, if we mock people who say that God did this great thing, we will miss the miracle every time. Second truth about miracles is this, believing is often seeing. Believing is often seeing. It's interesting to me. What happens here in this passage, Jesus would not allow the sick woman who had been healed to keep her miracle private. He insisted that her miracle become public. And yet, he didn't want this private miracle of raising a child to life to be made public. He says, don't tell people about it. Now, why is that? Well, people knowing that uh, the woman's uh, had been healed would allow her to re-enter society. It would allow her to be accepted. It would declare her clean. Her clean. Uh, but here, he didn't want non-believers to get the blessing of experiencing or witnessing the miracle. He didn't want them to have that privilege. So, how do you miss miracles? Well, you just don't believe they can happen. You just don't believe that they can happen. The truth is sometimes we don't see miracles because we don't expect them and we didn't notice them when they happened. We want to explain them away as coincidence or an accident or a fluke. But sometimes because we don't expect to see miracles, they just don't happen at all. We read in Scripture about Jesus going one time to Nazareth, his hometown, and he was teaching there and uh, speaking there, and people started saying this. They started saying, who's this guy think he is? 
I mean, we know him. He grew up here. We saw him in his father's carpenter shop. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Where does this guy think he gets off? Where does he think he gets this power and authority? It was after they said that that Jesus commented this. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown or with his family. And then after saying that, we read some of the saddest words that you will ever read in Scripture. They're found in Matthew 13. Here's what it says. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He didn't do many miracles in his hometown because of their lack of faith. They missed out on miracles because they refused to believe. And believing is often seeing. If we don't believe we will miss miracles. There's another truth that I think is important for us to talk about in this series. Here's the truth about miracles. They rarely happen. They rarely happen. They really aren't that common. That's why we call them miracles. That's why last weekend we pointed out that it had been about 900 years since the last recorded miracle of God using his power to bring someone back from the dead. The truth is miracles like this are not common. So how do you deal with it if you've believed that a miracle is possible? If you've prayed for a miracle, if you've trusted God for a miracle and no miracle comes? This is the second weekend I've talked about Jesus raising children back to life when they died, and yet I'm the father of a daughter who died at age four, and though we believed that God could do miracles while we prayed for her healing, Jesus didn't give her back to us when she died. I'm sure there's others here who have prayed for miracles and believed that they could happen and you prayed and the person is still sick or you've prayed and your loved one died and and I'm sure that there were others in the crowd that day some who had buried their children and not had them given back to them some who had been ill for a long time and had not received miraculous healing so how do we explain that Was it that they didn't have enough faith? No. Those are fighting words for me. Don't you ever say to someone that if they believe enough, they're guaranteed a miracle. That isn't what Scripture says. It isn't the case. So was it that Jesus cared more about certain people and he gives them healing and our loved ones just didn't write, please hear me. That's not the case. The fact is, miracles were really rare then, and they're really rare now, at least in regard to physical healings or people being brought back to life on earth after they died. But the most important truth about miracles is this last one. For Christ followers, death may be the miracle. For Christ followers, death may be the miracles. We, we think sometimes that death is the worst thing that can happen. 
when we trust in Jesus, it's really not. It's really not. So how do you deal with it when you believed and you prayed and healing didn't happen? Well, I think first we gain this biblical understanding of death. Remember how Jesus said she was sleeping? Was he lying to them? Well, I don't think so. I know not because next week when we talk about Lazarus, we're going to see that Jesus says Lazarus is asleep. And when they ask him a question about that, he clarifies and says, what I mean is he died. And so Jesus uses sleep as a euphemism for death. So why not just say they're dead? Well, I think it's because the word dead has such a final connotation, but uh, being asleep is a temporary connotation, and therefore it isn't a permanent situation. You see, this girl was only asleep because Jesus planned to raise her back to life. And Lazarus is only asleep because Jesus is going to raise him up. And the same is true for us as Christ followers. When we die, we sleep because Jesus raises us to life because we've trusted in him for forgiveness and salvation. Look at this verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Fallen asleep in him. Doesn't that sound much better than the word dead? Death is so despondent, so final. But fallen asleep has much more pleasant tone. It, it actually sounds quite peaceful. Like when we say that we hope that the person that has died will rest in peace. Isn't it comforting to know that those in Christ don't really die? We simply fall asleep. Not that that lessens the reality of the loss, but it does soften the blow for we can know that the death of a Christian is only momentary. It's not the worst thing. It might actually be the best thing. And in truth, death for a Christ follower is the ultimate healing of all pain and all disease. While reading this story, I, I had this picture in my mind. I pictured these parents sitting next to the bed of their daughter with her body there in the bed and they wanted her back and they wanted her well and Jesus comes into the room and says Talitha kum or young girl I tell you stand up and she does she stands up and she starts walking around and then Jesus says hey give her something to eat she's hungry and then I pictured sitting next to the deathbed of my daughter, the deathbed of my mother, other deathbeds that I've sat next to, and desperately praying for and wanting healing and health. And Jesus enters the room, or maybe from his side of eternity, he says, Talitha kum. Young girl or young man, 
I tell you to stand up. This time the person doesn't stand up and walk around the room. They stand up and walk into heaven. And you know what happens there? They give them something to eat. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. My friends who I love, someday, if we continue to trust in him, if we hear his words, don't be afraid, just believe, Jesus will call to us and he will invite us to walk into heaven, a place with no death, a place with no disease, a place with no depression, a place with no divorce, a place with no crime, a place with no goodbyes. And he will invite us to his feast and we will sit down at a table and we will join our loved ones who trusted in Jesus in the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then we'll know that death is not the worst thing. That healing and freedom take place when we run to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we just don't understand. We don't understand why miracles happen in some situations and not in ours. And Father, we know how much we believe. And yet, sometimes the answer that we want doesn't come. And so, Father, right now, we just fall at your feet, trusting you, believing in you. And Father, thank you so much for the fact that in the midst of our desperation, you notice us and you care about us and you are ready to comfort us and to help us. And now, Father, would you just help us to push away fear so that we can believe? Would you help us to notice the things that you are doing in our life and to praise you for them? In Jesus' name.